Good morning. If you please turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans. We're going to be in Romans chapter 8. Happy New Year's Eve. For the next two weeks, we're going to read uh, verses 31 through 39. For the next two weeks, we're going to be kind of focusing on some big picture things as we think about the coming of a new year. Um, In Romans 8, we're going to look up, see how we relate to God. And then Lord willing, I think Pastor Bird is going to, we're going to look at Romans 15 and see how we look out, you know, and, and relate to one another before we get into a, a new series in the spring. So Romans 8, 31 through 39. Um, new Year's is a common, um, is a season for us to plan resolutions or or joke about planning resolutions. You know, because of the, the idea is we've got a fresh beginning, a new start, the end of the old, the coming of the new. Um, but we make jokes often because about resolutions that, because they're incredibly difficult to stick to. Um, I was looking up some studies. There was a study about 10 years ago that said 8% of people who, who, who set a resolution completed. If you look at that negatively, 92% of people who plan, make a promise to themselves, a resolution, 92% fail. <laughs> it's not a good statistic. We know, we know they're difficult to keep because we make jokes like, my resolution this year is to avoid exercise. And we, you know, that's something that we have, maybe, maybe if you're me, you have some familiarity with. Um, can joke about that. So, at the end of the at the end of the day, though, resolutions um, they, they they help us see one quality about ourselves: is that we're not very reliable. We fail. I think that's one reason why there's an element of the gospel message that is very bewildering to us. It's very astonishing to us. Um, it's it's astonishing so so much that we would fool ourselves into doubting it, doubting. Um, that it could be true. We don't keep our own promises. We don't keep our own resolutions. We fail. However, in Christ, if you're trusting in Christ, you are totally secure. You are totally secure. Look at what Paul says here in Romans 8, 31. We'll read 31 through 39. The word of God says... What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors 
through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In this passage, Paul makes a declaration that is defying our understanding of human reliability and and faithfulness. If you're trusting in Jesus, God's work to save you is not bound by your efforts, your, your efforts. It's not bound by your liability or even even the, the, the suffering, the, the challenging circumstances in life. If you're trusting in Christ, God is your security. God is the one who makes you victorious. You have victory in God. Let's pray and we'll continue in this passage. And Father, I pray that you will help us see this. Help our unbelief. Help us to look up in hope and joy and peace and confidence. Help us to see that your saving work is a sufficient work. And help me, Father, to be clear. In Christ's name we pray, amen. If you look in verse 31, Paul, he begins with a single statement which is, it's, I think it establishes the, the thought of the entire passage. So you've got to look at 31, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things, if God is for us, who can be against us? Paul is desiring to communicate to you and me that God, if you're in Christ, God is for you. What does he mean by for you? What does he mean by for you? If you look at Romans 8, verse 30, which is one verse prior, I think you'll see that God being for you means that you're totally saved, you're totally secured. God is for you by justifying you, making you righteous, making you right before God. God is for you, sanctifying you, making you pure, cleaning you. And God is promising to glorify you. You will have all things, as he says um, later in in 8.32. However, Paul says here in verse 31 that God is for you despite these things. He's for you despite these things. You can see, what shall we say to these things? What are these things? Um, I think these things will be addressed a little bit later. However, I think that that Paul um, wants you to think, when you think about these things, he wants you to think about the suffering in the present moment. In this present moment, um, the suffering that is, is, uh, is happening. In, in verse 18 of Romans chapter 8, because I just threw you into the middle of Romans here, let me give you some context. Verse 18, Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. So if you follow then from that verse, the flow of thought, after verse 18, you'll see that suffering doesn't have the final say for the Christian. In fact, in Romans 8.28, closer to this passage, Paul says that all things 
All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So the implication is that the Christian will suffer. There is suffering in the world. We, we know that. But even through suffering, God is working all things for good. In Romans 8.31, which begins our passage here, it states very strongly, these things, these things do not have the final word if God is for us. If God is for us, nothing can be against us. So the call is for us to see that. We need to see the tremendous victory that we have here in God. I've got five quick reasons why we are victorious in God. First, you're victorious in God because he purchased you. He purchased you at the highest price. In verse 32, um, you can see the victory you have in God by looking at the, the currency God used to purchase, purchase you. Verse 32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now that's a, that's a, a little bit of a confusing verse. Let's break it down. But don't, just notice that God paid for us here with an, a pretty unusual form of currency. Currency. He offered up, it says, his own son, Jesus, the son of God, he who did not, God who did not spare his own son, Jesus, the son of God, is offered up for you. And that, if, maybe if you're not a Christian or if you're hearing that for the first time, maybe if you're young, that's a crazy statement. If you personalize it and, and think of your own child, for example, think of the, the profound giving, the, the cost, the giving up the life of your child for the sake of another. It's unfathomable. He who did not, it says that God purchased you with a, a, the currency of his son. And I think Paul does mean for us to be shocked in a, in a way when, when we hear that. He wants us to be encouraged, even mind-boggled that God gave up his own son for you. How does he accomplish it, though? How does, how does he accomplish this? Paul's argument in verse 32 is something like an if-then statement. If, if God gave up his own son for me, then how, then how, Could I doubt? How could I doubt that God will give me all things? But there's even more that needs to be said to this. There's, there's even more than, because Paul says, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So notice that Paul qualifies the giving. He qualifies the giving. He says that God will first give us all things or eternal life, glory with him. He will give us all things with him. In other words, God will use this him to give us all things. And contextually, the him is Jesus. And it is Jesus who will provide the means for God to give us all things. The exchange of the currency of Christ empowered through his death, his burial, his resurrection is the means for God to give us all things. In other words, 
Jesus' sacrifice did something. It did something for you and me. The second qualifier tells of the way you and I get all things. Paul says that God will, through Christ, graciously give us all things. These things come, these all things, come as an unearned gift. God gave up his son, the highest payment imaginable, and God's giving of the son, it's an act of wrath and judgment, for us is an act of grace for anyone who trusts in Christ. So if your question if the question comes to mind, how can I know that I'm secure in God? Or as the passage states, how do I know that God will give me all things, eternal life with God and Christ? How do I know that I am justified? I'm made right before God. How do I know that I'm being sanctified? He's making me holy. How do I know that I will be glorified, that there is a good end? It's not going to be a bad end. How do I know that? In, you know that through the work of God in Christ. He did not spare his own son. If you're still discouraged, if you're, if you're still discouraged or, or uncertain, think about the currency. Think about what God did. Think about it this way. Why would God give up his son for you and yet fail to keep you? What would that make of the sacrifice of Christ if it wasn't sufficient to hold you to the end? God will not let the sacrifice of Christ be wasted. So God's purchased for you, purchase of you. It builds our confidence, should build our confidence. The second thing is we're victorious. You're victorious in God because the one who, who, who purchased you, God who purchased you, he's also your justifying judge. You can see that in verse 33. God is your, is your justifying judge. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That's another question Paul poses. His, his response is, it's God who justifies. So if you imagine an accusation coming against you, someone who says, who, who knows the sins you've committed, um, we all have, many, have done many things that a lot of people don't know about. And if they did know about, they would probably think of, think of us differently for them. But, you know, things we don't want to be resurfaced. But what, what if someone stands before God, an accuser, maybe the devil himself, and he says, this person is a hypocrite, this person is a liar, this person, you know, to, to the God who knows everything, this person is not worthy. In this case, Paul says, you don't need to fear that accusation. You don't need to fear that accusation. Why? Because... God has the final word. God is the one who justifies. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? Who can bring any charge against God's chosen ones? Who can bring any charge against the ones God has saved? God is the one who justifies. In other words, God finally, fully is the one who can say, this one's mine. So someone, an accuser, walks into God's courtroom and points at you. You're standing before God and they point at you saying, I've got a charge against this one. God looks at them and says, 
you have a charge against one of mine. Who shall bring a charge against God of the elect? It is God who justifies. That's encouraging. God purchased you. He's your justifying judge. Thirdly, you're victorious in God because Jesus is your substitutionary sacrifice. Jesus is your substitutionary sacrifice. In other words, condemnation may come if you, if you continue on. In, at the beginning of verse uh, 33, excuse me, four, 34, who is to condemn? In verse 34, we, we see, he, I think what Paul is doing is he's asking a parallel question. So the first question is, um, who shall bring a charge against you? It's God who justifies. Parallel question, who shall condemn? Who is there to condemn? Who will stand before God and condemn you? And Paul's answer to the question is simply, Jesus is the one who died. Christ Jesus is the one who died. Now what does he mean by that? Why is he bringing up the death of Christ? He's already alluded to it, right? Earlier in verse 32, and I think we need to understand it by looking also at verse 32. I think Paul is reminding us that just as sure as God is your justifying judge, the one who is, has the final say, so also Jesus is your substitutionary sacrifice. Jesus is your substitutionary sacrifice. A, a common verse that, that many people memorize is Romans 6.23, and the first part of it says is, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And, and, and um, that thought is continued in Romans 8, in chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 3. It's going to be on the screen, I think. This is, this is what God did with, uh, with, with Christ. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sin, of, in, in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. The wages of sin is death, and God sent forth his son, and by a miracle of grace, Jesus is the one who died in your place, if you're trusting in him. He died the death reserved for you, substitution. That's why we call it a substitution, in my place payment. His death in place, my, something that was deserved for me. It's a substitution. So who is there to condemn if your faith is in Jesus? And the answer to all of these is nobody. There's nobody that's going to be able to bring a charge. There's nobody that's going to be able to condemn. It's been paid for. It's been paid for in Christ. He purchased you. He's your judge. Jesus is your substitutionary sacrifice. Fourth, you're victorious in God because Jesus is also your heavenly advocate. Not only your substitutionary sacrifice, he's in heaven advocating for you. If you go further, if we go further in verse 34, who is singing them? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And that's a great statement right there, but he doesn't stop there. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
Paul doesn't merely want us to be thinking about the cross, not only of the cross. He wants us to think three more things about what Jesus has done. First, he's that, he's that, that substitutionary sacrifice. Jesus who died was raised. He's alive. He's alive. That's the first thing. He's a living savior. But he secondly says he's in an honorary status all throughout the New Testament as prophesied in the Old Testament in Psalm 110. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, which means a couple things. It means that he finished it. He finished the work. It means he's exalted. He's in a place of honor, which he deserves. And thirdly, and importantly, Jesus is interceding for you. Jesus is interceding for you if your trust is in Christ. What does it mean that he's interceding for the Christian? We know that it doesn't mean that he's constantly being re-sacrificed. It was once for all, as Hebrews 10 tells us, Hebrews 10, 12. It's, it's, not a complete, it's not a sacrifice being repeated over and over. Christ died once for all. What I think it means is that the sacrificial Savior, the sacrificial Savior Christ, he's before God, alive, ensure, ensuring that we are his. We are victorious. Because our Savior made it so, he made it so on the cross, and he's keeping it so. He's at the right hand of God. He is interceding for us. There's a hymn, I think it'll be up on the screen. It's a lovely hymn called Before the Throne of God Above. And it's got a line that that reads, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. And when you hear that line, when I hear that line and sang it before studying this passage, I always think of the cross. Upward I look and see them. He's on the cross. I'm not saying that's a bad thought, but I think if Paul were the author of this song, or if this song were based on Romans 8.34, which it may be, I think Paul would say that when you look up to the Christ, when you look up, upward I look and see him, I see Jesus there, you don't only see the sacrifice you see the death the resurrection and glory christ in glory he went to the cross he died he was raised from the grave and he's now sitting up there he's sitting up there at god's right hand interceding he's interceding He's not a dead sacrifice. He's not a passive savior, Jesus. He is actively, actively interceding on our behalf before God. So we should address him as so. We should address him that way. He is at the right hand of God. This is incredibly helpful too, to think when when it comes to security. I have a savior You have a savior at the right hand of God right now interceding. Think of a a thought that enters your mind. The The commission of sin, an accusation. I've got a savior. He's interceding. 
Whenever that thought enters that, your mind, if you're hoping in Christ, trust in Christ, Jesus Christ, standing before God, that one's mine. Still mine, still mine. And I think we'll see that as we go on. It's a sufficient sacrifice. Christ's blood is sufficient. So you're victorious in, in God. We are victorious because God purchased you. He's your judge who justifies you. Jesus is your substitutionary sacrifice. And he's standing before God as your heavenly out advocate. And finally, which is really the, the conclusion Paul comes to, which is the rest of the passage, God's love in Christ will sustain you through anything, no matter the circumstance. And I think it's good that, that, that Paul does do that. He, he indicates in verse 35 by, by giving us a long list of hardships that could try to steal you away from security in Christ. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. And he keeps going on, even, even later on, listing potential or things that, is that going to steal me away from the love that God has for me in Christ? And he confirms that, that, that this is the life that we live. This, this, this is something that is going to come upon us by quoting Psalm 44, 22. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So just as surely as Jesus came fulfilling the prophecy of his Messiahship, that he's the Savior, we also can know that living for God, going back, you know, Jesus is going back to, to the Old Testament, or Paul is going back to the Old Testament, we can also go back and know that following the Lord will not mean a life free from suffering. That's not the point Paul is trying to make. There's actually an expectation that hardship is, is part of being a Christian. Paul, Paul never says that those who are trusting in Christ are free from hardship. The point is, the point that Paul wants to make is that any hardship, any hardship can come against those who are in Christ, but those hardships will never separate us from the love of Christ. Come one may. Yes, it will come. It may come, but in Christ, you'll never be lost. He will hold you fast. Suffering may be inflicted by others. He, he, he lists persecution, sword. They may come. They may come. They will come. Suffering may come as a result of a sin-stricken world. Famine may come. Nakedness, lack of personal property may come. Those things are not absent from the Christian life. However, the promise of victory, despite those things, is just as clear. Just as sure as those things are hard and those things do come in life, the promise of your victory in Christ is just as clear. It is determined, it is settled if you're in Christ. It is so certain that Paul says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
It is so certain that Paul says, I am sure. I am sure. Victory is mine. We're winners. Neither death, nor life, nor rulers, nor things, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else. If I missed anything, guys, Paul's saying, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You can't name a height, a depth. You can't add that to a trial where the love of God in Christ is not sufficient to sustain. You're totally secure. And I love how he says things present and things to come because we're big worriers about the future and maybe you're looking ahead. He says things present, like, okay, I think my present's okay, but what about the future? Will he continue? Things present or things to come? In all things, you are more than conquerors. In Christ, he will keep you. So let's consider what God has done, what he's doing. He purchased you at the highest price. He's the one who justifies you. Jesus, the sacrificed son of God, he is the substitute for your sin, the atonement for your sin, the payment for your sin. He's alive. He's living as your advocate before God. The conclusion is God's love for you in Christ will sustain it will sustain us through any trial in this life. By God's power, by God's power, we are victorious. So God has made a resolution. And it's not held together like our resolutions are held together. Our feeble, failing resolutions. God is resolved in Christ. And, and, and for us it is a guarantee of glory. He purchased you. You are his. Nothing, nothing will separate you from his love if you're trusting in Christ. This is where we are called to live as Christians. This is the standpoint where Christians are called to live from. We fight sin in this victory. We repent in this victory. We seek the lost in this victory. We love the world and love one another, love the lost, love one another in this victory, we see who Jesus is in this victory. As we consider the, the, the coming new year, my, a prayer for mine, a prayer for myself and for us as a, as a church is that God will fill us evermore with rock-solid confidence in the victory you have in God. He did the work if your hope is in him, you're his forever. Let's resolve to trust in the Lord in 2023 or 2024. Let's pray. God, we, we uh, all glory and praise to you. May we live for you. May we glorify you. May we see the victory that we have in Christ. 
May we leave foolish things behind and press on. In Christ's name we pray, amen.